Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. It's good to see you this morning. Thanks for joining us for worship. Whether you're here or you're online, we're grateful you are here. Uh, We are going to be in the book of Colossians chapter 3 this morning. And we have some fun, fun verses ahead. Uh, It'll be four verses filled with... Here we go. Thought about being sick today, but I decided, nope. You preach what's next in the text and you seek God's truth and God's power and how to live this out. Those of you who wonder why everybody just laughed, we'll read the scripture in just a moment and you'll know we're tackling something today that is very culturally not accepted. It's very kind of uh, taken out of context uh, oftentimes um, because in large part, the way that God designed families to work is with Christ as the center. And back at the fall, back in Genesis 2, going to Genesis 3, God provides um, everything that Adam and Eve need for life and godliness. And in Genesis 3, we find that they choose rather than to trust God, they choose to trust their own wisdom, they choose to trust their own way, And what happens is that sin comes into the world and there's curse because of sin and the whole family structure, the whole societal structure kind of gets upended because of this desire for ruling and control and this desire for mastery. And this becomes a really, really hard thing because as Paul has been talking about throughout our study in Colossians, Paul, Paul is saying, I want to tell you, believers, um, here's who you once were. You were once alienated, separated from God. You are now made new in Christ. You have the righteousness of Christ. You have the power of God's spirit living within you, which then calls you to something. It calls you, as Christ is your life, to be a people who reflect Christ as your life in every sphere of your walk. And so you you kind of think of Colossians this way. Paul first begins by saying, who are you? right? He goes from who are you to what now do you do as a result of who you are? Because who you are, your um, being remade in Christ always leads to, to a conduct. So who you are, um, and then you have the what. Here's what you do, and that's what we studied the last couple times we've been in Colossians. He tells you to put off this and put off this. And last week, Pastor Tom looked at, here's what you put on in the power of Christ. But now we're going to answer the question, not who, not what, but where. Where do you walk out this new life? And Paul's going to contend that one of the primary places that you walk this out, believers, is in your homes. Next week, we're going to talk about masters and slaves. I, I figured because masters and slaves is so different than like the way we tend to think, that deserved its own conversation. Um, so we're just going to tackle the home, just tackle the home today. Um, but, but this is so important because when Paul says in Colossians 3, 17, I think it is, he says, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. All these things that he calls the believers to, everything you do should be applied to everywhere in your life. But one of the hardest places to apply this message is sometimes with the people who know us the best. Right? I remember having a a mentor of mine once say, Jeremy, the place where we tend to sin the most is in the family. Why? Because... We live with people. And when we live with them, they see us on our good days and they see us on our bad days. We, we might be able to, to, to pass by or to fake it here for an hour and a half with a church family. Or we may be able to kind of gloss by conversation over coffee with a friend. But the people who really know us, the people who really experience all of our struggles, are the people with whom we live. 
And so we're going to tackle the where do we walk out this Christ life. And Paul's contention for our time today is going to be in our home. But there's great hope to that. Because Christ is sufficient. When Christ is our life, Christ gives us the power we need to walk out his truth in the context in which he's placed us. So, with all that said... And we are going to talk about the home today. And just a couple of, of caveats as we begin this. Um, the, the first is understand that the family has always been the most fundamental unit of society. Always. That goes back literally hundreds and hundreds of years. But I also recognize, before we read this passage, that many of us have different experiences in relationship with our spouses and in relationship with our kids. Um, they can be positive, they can be negative within our homes of origin. Another thing I just want to mention is that most of us have experienced levels of function and dysfunction in our homes. And some of us in this room have experienced incredibly wonderful relationships with our spouses or incredibly wonderful relationships with our parents or with our kids. But that's not the case for all of us here. Some families, because of the effect of sin, have experienced various levels of relational challenge or abuse. And, and I just want to recognize before we read this, um, God knows those things and God meets you with grace for whatever you face today. Um, also, I want to say that, as your, that your home context may not be great, but as we study today, I want you to begin, I want all of us to begin to prayerfully ask God to help us focus on, all right, Lord, what now do you want me to do as a result of the truth we have encountered? What, what, what does the now look like? And it may mean going back and forgiving some of the past wrongs. It may be... Um, Choosing by faith to walk now in the fullness of Christ who is your life. Because maybe you found yourself trying to walk out this Christian life in your own power and you found that that's not terribly successful. It may be um, today that, that what God reveals to you is a whole new way of living. Because as we, in fact, it, it is a whole new way of living. Um, and, and I want to encourage each one of us um, to be obedient to the revelation God has given you. Why do I say that? Because we're going to read wives act in this way. Husbands act in this way. Kids act in this way. Parents, especially fathers, act in this way. When we walk in light of how God has taught us, right? I'm not a wife, right? but I am a husband, so I am called to something. When I walk in light of what, God has told, of what God has told me to do, I am being faithful to his word to me. We'll talk about that more. I also want to, to mention this morning that some of you may not be married, and some of you may not have kids, and, and these may not more directly apply to you. Um, but I want to ask you to stay with me because I think they absolutely apply to you, at least in the sense of this way. Every single one of us has experiences with friends and with family who are in, I shouldn't say everyone, most people, uh, have experiences with friends or family who are experiencing some degree of challenge or dysfunction within their home. And God has given us, as the body of Christ, to, he's given us to the world to be his ambassadors to say, you know what? God has a different way for how you operate in this context. You may be a person who is single here today. That may be where God has you. Bless the Lord for that. But as we experience truth here, say, all right, Lord, help me to be obedient to share this truth of your word in the context in which you have placed me. It may not be directly applicable to my life, but maybe it is for me to share with someone else. And you may be here today, and you might be preparing for marriage, or you might be preparing at some point in time to maybe have kids, if God allows that, and know that this is part of your training as you get ready for that. So with all those caveats in place, um, I invite you to please rise in spirit or in body for the reading of scripture from Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, this is the word of the Lord. Um, wives, 
Uh, actually, I'm going to start in verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, be submissive to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so they won't become discouraged. Our Father and our King, we pray that through the working of your Spirit, you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to set upon your truth today, so that we might walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received. Lord, help us to rightly apply these words from your word to our lives. We trust you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So I entitled my sermon, uh, Who is in Charge? Who is in Charge? Because a great deal of how we relate to one another involves a desire for control. In fact, as I mentioned back in Genesis chapter 3, when the fall happens, God created Adam, and then he created Eve, and he actually gave Adam the, um, the, the responsibility to name Eve. And in doing so, in a Jewish framework of reference, by naming her, he actually takes responsibility for her. Now, God's intention was not for them, not for him to lord over her. It was for them to work as a synergistic couple. Eve was Adam's companion. The word is ezer kenegdo in the Hebrew. It means one who is equal to and adequate for the man in everything that he needed. She was God's gift to Adam. And he was the one who was going to compliment her because he is counting animals. And he's going, there's two, there's two, there's two, there's two, there's one. So, so when sin happened, though, um, there's a curse that enters the world. And what God says is um, the wife is going to experience now a desire for control over her spouse. And then he says, um, Adam, you're going to experience a desire to rule. So we see back in Genesis that there's this struggle for who is in charge. There's a struggle for who's in charge. And how this plays out is going to be incredibly important within the context of our life. Um, I want to give you just a couple quick things about marriage and family in the context to which Paul is writing. Paul is writing in what is partly a Jewish context and is partly a Greco-Roman context. Um, this is a picture of a Jewish bride and groom at their wedding. Jewish weddings had two stages. They had a betrothal, and then they had the ceremony. The betrothal, kind of like our engagement, um, when that occurred, it means that they are legally married at that point. And then there's a whole year where they're not living together until they have this final ceremony that they have um, covenants made and they have obligations that are, that are um, shared between one another and they enter into this marriage. Um, marriage and family is a central component of Jewish life. While, of course, there were people for whom God intends singleness, marriage and family was highly valued from a Jewish perspective and absolutely key to furthering the progeny of the Jewish people. In fact, the home was so important that after the destruction of the temple in AD 70, the rabbis refer to the home as a small sanctuary. In Hebrew, it's mikdash me'ot. It's the small sanctuary because they understood the very, very important um, privilege and, and responsibility that dads and that moms have in raising their kids to love and to follow the Lord. And the idea is that through the high calling of marriage, the scriptures would be taught, shared, and lived in dependence on for the glory of God. So you have this Jewish perspective of family. Then you also have a Greco-Roman perspective on the family. In fact, Aristotle writes that there's three components to the family. There are, get them right here, there are um, masters over slaves, um, fathers, and husbands. So you have the three different 
things that Paul actually references here within his writing to the church at Colossae. This is a photo of a place in Crete, um, what's likely the capital of Crete. It's called Gorton back in the first century. And what you have on this wall here, you probably can't see it very well, is you actually have a bunch of ins inscriptions chiseled into this rock that was part of the household code. In other words, what's written on here, and I think I've got one more. There you go. They spent a lot of time writing, here is how this relationship interplays with itself. So like masters over slaves, or husbands with wives, or children with parents. Um, also, in this first century context, um, we have um, a very patriarchal Roman society. Um, many societies are patriarchal, and that's not necessarily bad. Uh, we'll talk about more, more about that in a minute. But in the Roman context, you have what is called the paterfamilias. The paterfamilias is the head of the household. In Greek, the word pater is, is father, um, and familias, I think you're with me there, right? The paterfamilias, he's the head of the household. And especially in the centuries leading up to the time of Jesus, the paterfamilias in Roman culture had a ton of power. They had not only um, complete authority over their family, um, their, their wife, their kids, um, their sons for a long time. Um, they had authority over their slaves or their servants. Um, but they also had responsibility which came with this. In other words, so they could say, son, I want you to do this. But if their son did something that was maybe a little kind of crazy or fool-headed, not that sons would ever do that, um, <clears throat> they would own the responsibility. If someone else came and said, your kid did this, the dad's on the hook, right? So you can imagine many of them probably kept a pretty tight ship. It, it reminded me, uh, as I was thinking this week, um, when I was in high school, I was involved in a slight vehicle altercation in a parking lot. And who did I call? I called my dad. Now, it's kind of funny because I was coming from a band concert, so I'm dressed in a tuxedo. I have, like, bells and chimes in the back of the family minivan. I had a small ding with another car. I called my dad. What does my dad do? He drives the 20, 25 minutes down to the Taco Bell where I was at getting lunch at, or dinner at, like, 9 o'clock at night. He gets out, and the, the guy who I had this altercation with, uh, not, not a physical altercation, but like a car bumped a car, uh, he was not terribly pleased. So what did my dad do? He grabbed his business card, and he said, I'm a dentist in town here. If there's anything that I owe you for this, call me. Now, he didn't absolve me of any responsibility. He knew it was an accident. Um, but he took on this responsibility role in a very, very particular way that said to the other person, who I don't think ever contacted him, because he, the guy was pr pretty, um, pr pretty hot after the incident, and just, just the kindness that my dad showed kind of, kind of lowered the temperature a little bit. Um, but that's kind of the idea of a paterfamilia. It, it, it's someone who takes responsibility for, but someone who also has some instruction. Because biblically speaking, fathers especially are supposed to have roles of instruction within their home. Of course, that can be partnered with the wife. Uh, but, but they're supposed to have this primary, like, how are you instilling the word and the truth of God into your family? Should God give you that? And realistically... Though, uh, our, our culture struggles with this kind of relationship. In fact, I like the way that Dr. Randall Smith says it as he's talking about this in some of his comments on, on Colossians. He says, the world has no interest in distinctions between men and women. It sees any biblical statement about them as increasingly hostile to their militant and exclusive indoctrination of all that any distinction in role is tantamount to inequity in value. He says, our world seems to plead for a family that is not led by anyone. A government of the home is as paralyzed in leadership as, is, as in every other institution. What's Paul doing? Paul is saying, you all have equal value and worth before God. Wives, husbands, kids, slaves. You all have equal worth before God. But that does not mean that there is not distinction within the home, right? 
doesn't mean that there's not distinction within the home. So let's dive into some of that distinction. First, we have this phrase in verse 18 that says, Wives, be submissive to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. The word here for submit is the word in Greek, upotasso. Can you say that with me? Upotasso, it's a fun word to say. And it means to subject oneself involving a recognition of ordered structure. You could translate it, a voluntary yielding in love. What I want you to notice is in the grammar of this word, um, it is something that, that the husband can't say, wife, I want you to submit. Right? It's something that the wife has to choose to do. Properly translated, submit yourself, it says. Wives, submit yourself to your husband as to the Lord. And this changes some of the way that submission has been framed within our context. Sometimes we hear that word submit, we go, wait, wait, what, what? You mean I have to do what they say? No. As to the Lord, wives, you are called to submit yourself to your husbands. Now it's particular there. You're not called to submit yourselves in this marriage relationship to any other guy, right? Your submission is to your husband. It says, as is fitting in the Lord. And so God is the one who's saying, wives, submit yourselves. Voluntarily say, I will yield in love to the leadership that God intends for my husband to have within our family. Now, one of the challenges with this is sometimes in our homes, um, fathers or husbands, we're talking husband-wife relationship here, husbands seek and desire to rule their wife rather than to do what God's going to call them to do next, which is to love them. So, wives, you particularly have this opportunity, whether your husband is walking in the truth of God's word or not, God's word to you is, Subject yourself, voluntarily yield yourself to the leadership of your husband, as is fitting in the Lord. To subject oneself here is an instruction given to the wife. And, and actually later, if you'd like to um, look at Ephesians chapter 5, you don't need to turn there now. But he goes about talking about how um, the church is called to you know, sing together with psalms, hymns, hymns, and spiritual songs. It's very similar to what happens in, in Colossians, in the Colossian letter. And then he says, submitting to one another. He's talking to the church out of reverence for Christ. And then he says, wives, to your husbands as to the Lord. And the implied verb there is submit yourself to your husbands as to the Lord. So he's, he's getting that idea again. But here's what submission is not. Submission does not mean inferiority. Hear me. It does not mean inferiority. As I've said, husbands, our wives are given by God to be our ezer konegdo in Hebrew. The one who is equal to and adequate for you in every way. The one who God has given to complement you in the role God has called you to play. He's called husbands. He's called us to lead. But not to lead in a way that we rule, but to lead in a way of love. We'll talk about that in a minute. But wives, it, this does not mean inferiority. Submission is not making your value less. It is saying, out of love for God and out of obedience to his word, I will come underneath the authority of my husband. His care, his protection, his provision, everything that God desires him to do and to walk in, I submit to that. Um, but, so I'll say, submission does not mean inferiority, but also submission cannot be forced by the husband. All right, I already talked about that. The verbal tense here is a command to the wife, not a command to the husband to tell the wife. Got me? Good. I hope so. Um, finally, submission looks like respecting your husband and his God-given role to spiritually lead your family. It looks like, for example, like being careful about how you talk about him in public, um, honestly and communicating, honestly and clearly communicating about matters within your home and within your relationship. It does not resemble coercion. It does not um, resemble a desire for control over your family. It, it doesn't, it doesn't 
um, really, when it talks about this, when a wife is submissive to her husband as is fitting in the Lord, you know what actually it starts looking like? I think it starts looking like what Paul has just talked about in verse 12. Therefore, God's chosen ones, holy in love, put on heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, accepting one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Above all, put on love, because love is the perfect bond of unity. That's what it looks like. And you're yielding to his leadership within your home as God leads him in leading the home. This idea as, of as is fitting in the Lord means, the, uh, means as is appropriate or as is proper in the Lord. One scholar phrases it like this. He says, submit in a manner that is appropriate for those who are in the Lord. I'm going to clarify this in one way. Is there a point where wives are not called to submit? Right? Is there a point at which wives do not submit to their husbands? And I would say when their husbands have asked them to do something that goes against the clear teaching of God's word, their first and foremost allegiance is always to the Lord. Always. You know, the, the apostles um, have this conversation with someone in the book of Acts, I think it is, where they say, we have to obey God rather than man. So in areas that are clear biblical no-goes, like, like for example, if your husband were to ask you to steal a candy bar from the store, right, go something innocuous here, then out of love for the Lord, you say, no, I can't do that because it would break my, my allegiance and my obedience to God first. But where God has called your husband to lead, you're called to voluntarily yield yourself in love as is fitting to the Lord. All right, talk, for a while, talk about wives there for a little while. Now we're going to talk about husbands. Here he says to husbands, he says, Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. Love your wives. The word love here is the word agapao. Can you say agapao? Agapao, the standard Greek lexicon says to have warm regard for and interest in another, to cherish, to have affection for, to love. I, I like when we look at this word to understand um, how Jesus uses this word agapao um, and how the gospels and, and the writings use this word agapao because agapao is a very unique kind of love. In fact, the letter to 1 John is going to say, Beloved, let us love one another because love comes from God. Anyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not know God does not know love because God is agapao. This type of love is a type of love that only God can give. And when Jesus is on the eve of his um, going to the cross and being arrested and all, all that, um, he tells his disciples, love one another. Agapao one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. He says, by this the world will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And I love how he qualifies agapao there because he says, as I have loved you. And Paul does this, um, you know, earlier when he's talking about just as the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. And he says, you know, like, I want you to love one another. Where is it? It's here. Above all, put on love, the perfect bond of unity. When love is expressed in God's intention and desire, it brings unity. Because this kind of love is, is, is defined by that, but as Pastor Tom shared last week, I always use this, this definition as well when I work with couples and premarriage counseling and stuff. Love is a decision, my old, um, my old pastor, Pastor Mike, uh, said, an act of the will to bring to bear all of your resources to meet the needs of someone else without expecting anything in return. We tend to look at love from our cultural viewpoint as, oh, I feel in love. Or we, we tend to ascribe a high value to the emotions surrounding that. And I remember even as a kid <clears throat> growing up, my, my grandparents um, were in ministry. My grandpa was a pastor and he was a chaplain. And they had this thing, they had this magnet on their refrigerator that said, to love is a decision. And so many times we have to choose to love because love is an action. You go to 1 Corinthians 13, which is the famous love chapter that people read at weddings. I'm like, yeah, it describes love. But do you know what it calls you to? 
Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking. It does not rejoice in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. This kind of love is very action-based. It's not, oh, warm feelings towards you. Many times, warm feelings come at the end of that decision. Like, like there's feeling in this idea of love, but they come as a caboose on the train. They're not the engine. What God calls husbands to, as the initiators of the marriage covenant, is he says, husbands, I want you to love your wives. And don't be bitter toward them. Th- this idea of bitterness here, this idea of bitterness here means to cause bitter feelings, to embitter, to make bitter. It can refer to a general sense of sin, not a particular act. In, in Ephesians 4.31, bitterness tops the vice list that symbolizes every form of malice. Finally, in Hebrews 12.15, lack of grace is understood in terms of bitterness. So God is inviting husbands, husbands, the initiators of the marriage covenant, to take the lead and to say, I'm going to choose to love. I'm going to decide to love. I'm going to act in accordance with God's command for me to love my wife, regardless of how they feel, regardless of how I feel. Why? Because it's how I honor the Lord. In Ephesians, there's actually, um, you know, the, Later, go read Ephesians chapter 5. There's some, um, it it all correlates to what's going on here, but they give a little bit more commentary on it. And and Paul says that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So God's design for marriage is wives that you submit yourselves voluntarily to your husbands as to the Lord, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, that you are called to love your wife to the point where you would give yourself up to meet the needs that she has, spiritual needs, emotional needs, relational needs, without expecting anything in return. Right? It's not something where we say, oh, spouse, you're not doing that. You need to. Would you just be faithful to what God has called you to do and let God reveal himself the areas in your spouse's life where maybe they're falling short? Maybe give them grace because what often happens in our marriages is someone reacts to the way that someone acted and then begins this chain reaction. Um, uh, One scholar, one marriage uh, writer calls it the crazy cycle. And what it takes to break that crazy cycle is acting in the right way that God designed and intended for you and I to walk. Husbands, the only way to love your wife in this way that God calls you to is to give your life to God and to allow him to live his life through you. It will manifest itself in the qualities Paul describes that we've already read in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. I want to summarize this comment or this conversation here though we could say a lot more with husbands and wives, by reading something by um, Dr. David Stern, who is a, a, a great commentator. He says this. This is a little bit long, but, but stay with me. He says, The asymmetry in the commands epitomizes the asymmetry in the marriage relationship. Paul could have written, Wives love your husbands, and husbands rule your wives. He says, but men often find it all too easy to throw their weight around, but hard to communicate love sensitively in a giving fashion, in a self-giving fashion, for the standard Paul sets is very high, just as the Messiah loved the church. Likewise, he says, women often find it easy and natural to express love, but difficult to accept their husband's authority. Feminist objection to wifely submission is premised on the assumption that the husband does not obey the injunction to love his wife as the Messiah loved the church. He says, in self-oriented marriages, arguments are between women who won't submit to their husbands and men who won't love their wives. In God-oriented marriages, arguments happen, but they have an altogether different character because they are between men willing to go the second mile in loving and women willing to go the second mile in submitting. In such marriages, the Messiah Jesus is the third partner. Like a magnet over iron fillings, he orients everything in the right direction. So I want you to see it this way. Gotta be careful. This is a very powerful magnet. 
when you and I submit, yield to Christ as being Lord in our life, what ends up happening is he draws us to himself. Right? And we're glued. And we have to learn to walk in the sense that we are forever glued. I'm not going to pull this off, by the way. That's how strong this is. When he does this in a marriage relationship, when God when we go to God for what we need in our marriage relationship, it draws both of us as husband and wife to the one who can give us everything we need. Sometimes I say it this way in pre-marriage counseling. I'll say, be more concerned about going to God for your needs and allowing Christ to live his life through you. And guess what? Your... Um, your feelings of dissatisfaction in your marriage relationship, they'll be met by the all-sufficient grace of God who meets you with everything you need. It may not change some of the brokenness and some of the things that you need to work through in your marriage relationship, but as you go to God, and both of you go to God, it will bring you closer together. It's God's design. He never meant husbands to be dependent on their wives, and he never meant wives to be dependent on their husbands. He meant both of us in our marriage relationship to be fully dependent upon him. And as we are dependent upon him, we walk out in the roles in which God has designed for us to walk. It may be that you are in a marriage relationship right now um, where you're working through some of that kind of stuff. I encourage you, um, go to God first. Number two, I encourage you, if you need help, find help. Find help. Come to one of us elders or pastors. We'd be happy to sit down with you guys. Have this conversation in your small groups. Um, have this conversation with a trusted friend, not to gossip, but to honestly ask God, God, how would you have me walk in a different way to be faithful to you? Maybe you're single here today and you're like, yeah, I'm not married no, you're not. So these obligations aren't given to you. And you can go, for now. If God calls you into marriage, know this. Um, if, you're, if, if you're a lady here today and God calls you uh, to marry a strapping young man or old man, whatever the age is. Um, whatever your age is, whether you're a young lady or you're not. You know? um, if you're a lady here today, God calls you, to, to, God calls you into this marriage covenant with a man. Know that God is going to ask you to voluntarily yield yourself in love to your husband's leadership and authority. That's what he's going to ask you to do. Make sure that in that decision and in that choice that you have, that it's a guy that you can yield yourself to, that is worthy for you to yield yourself to. Make it's about whom you enter into that covenant relationship of marriage with. And guys, the same thing for you. If God calls you at some point in time in the future into a marriage relationship, know that God is going to call you to die to yourself every single moment of every single day to love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Know that that's what he's going to call you into. And if that's not a commitment that you can make, then don't enter into it. Okay? There we go. Now, kids, this will be shorter than the, parent, than, than the, than the uh, husbands and wives were. Um, but no less important. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Paul says in verse 20, for this pleases, sorry, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they won't become discouraged. All right, a word to children and to fathers. Um, children, the word here for obey means um, to listen to. It's the word akuo in Greek. I don't have a slide for it. It's the word akuo, which is the Greek word that's often used for the word in Hebrew, shema. And you, may be, you might be like, I don't care. Shema is this word to hear. It means to listen. It means to obey. So the idea here of obey is not just, um, I'm going to do what you say. The idea here is to listen to the leadership of your dad, of your mom, 
specifically here, he's talking about fathers, um, but mothers have been given just an incredible opportunity as well. And I know that also single parent households exist. And so um, if you're in one of those type of situations, know that you obey, you hear, you shema, you akuo, your, your parents. Why? Because it pleases God. I love it. He, he qualifies it because your obedience to your parents is a way that you honor God. It's kind of like what he says. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Kids, what God is calling you to is to trust the wisdom of your parents. And, and if parents are walking with God, Trusting that wisdom is going to be a whole lot easier because their desire is not to rule and to lord over you. Their desire is for your good. Their desire, as it says in the scripture, is to bring you up in the teaching and the training of God. They, want, they, they care more about you than you could ever imagine, even though sometimes we perhaps don't express it in the most um, complete of ways. But this idea of raising up a kid, this is a bar mitzvah that's happening, uh, is so tied um, to this idea of, I, I want to hear as a kid the word of my dad, the word of my mom, so that I understand, because hearing is not just an auditory thing, it's something that helps bring understanding, and it's something that helps then um, give the idea of, I'm going to obey. And I'm going to obey not, not because I am guilted into it, or because I'm coerced into it, or because I'm forced into it, but I'm going to obey because it's the way God has called me to please him. Sometimes, and by the way, I used to be a kid as well, <laughs> and did not always, um, many times, did not walk this one out. Um, it's a way that we trust God's provision in our family relationships. In uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1 Paul actually ties this idea to uh, something that's written in the Hebrew Scriptures that has a promise of blessing. It's common for kids to ask, why? <laughs> right? Dad, why do I have to do that? Why must I engage in that? And sometimes as parents, it's, it's easy to say, because I told you to. <laughs> and sometimes we say that because it's like, I've given you every other reason, and I've got no other reasons left, and it seems as though you haven't heard the other reasons, so I'm going to say I told you to. Part of the teaching and the instruction, dads, is, is giving our kids clarity on why we might tell them to do something. But kids, one of the things that we want to humbly receive is say, all right, because my dad and my mom asked me to do that, I will do that as unto the Lord. As I said earlier, are there times, are there limits on obedience here? And, and yes, you know, it says, because it pleases the Lord. So if your mom or your dad ask you to do something that is not pleasing to the Lord, if they ask you to engage in some sort of sin or engage in some sort of other thing that is contrary to God's word, then you say, I can't do that because to do that would actually sever, not sever, to do that would be not obeying my father who is in heaven. So that's your caveat, kids. That's your caveat. Hear, listen, obey your parents in everything. For this pleases the Lord. And if it's something that does not please the Lord, gently, kindly go back to your mom and to your dad and say, in God's word it says this, and I think I'm called to this. And a dad and a mom who have a, a soft heart to the things of God won't see um, the attitude that sometimes accompanies disobedience. They'll see actually a greater obedience to a greater father who is in heaven. All right, kids, that's your word. Um, dads, I'm going to take a moment here. Um, it says here, um, fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they won't become discouraged. 
Um, culturally speaking, as I mentioned before, the paterfamilias had authority over their kids, particularly their sons for life. And not only did they have the responsibility to provide for them, clothes, food, etc., they had also the responsibility of rectifying anything that they did wrong in the community, i.e. me hitting a parked car in a parking lot. <laughs> So um, they take that responsibility seriously. Biblically speaking, Ephesians 6 commands fathers not to stir up anger within their children, but rather to bring them up in the instruction of the Lord. As dads, sometimes it only takes a glancing look for us to experience, or to express, not experience, for a glancing look for us to express anger or frustration to our kids. When we do that, what we end up doing, dads, and moms, is we end up communicating something non-verbally that can um, tell them about how they should think about themselves. In other words, I could look at one of my kids, and the look could be that parent look that's not, I'm correcting you out of love, but I'm correcting you because I want control. And what's absolutely exasperating to our kids is when we desire to have control without the command to love that comes alongside a dad's role in a family relationship. Loving is always having to do with what God wants best for that kid, which means sometimes dads and moms, we're going to have to say, I'm going to tell you no to that because you may not understand this now, but that actually brings in some really challenging days ahead if you were to say yes to that. It also means that as our kids get older, we're probably going to let that line go a little bit more so they can learn those lessons. But God gives us wisdom to know, when do I step in here to say, all right, I need you to come back here and have this conversation with me. Um, again, the paterfamilias had absolute control over his kids in Roman society. What God is calling dads here to do is to lead their families in a way that doesn't lead their kids to go, oh, there he goes again. I mean, they might do that, <laughs> but, but hopefully, even if that's the way that they respond, you come back with love and you come back with kindness and you come back with truth to ground them in what God calls us to do, the teaching of God's word. And sometimes, honestly, as dads, some, I'll speak as a dad because I'm not a mom, uh, sometimes we just get so tired, they're like, okay, whatever. <laughs> and we just kind of give up. Um, I remember... Uh, one time working with one of my kids. It was getting towards the end of the day. And um, rather than pointing them to Jesus, I didn't want to continue a conversation anymore. And so they entered, one of the kids entered the room, and I knew where they were going to go. I could tell by the tone in their voice. And I said, I don't care. Do you know how much damage those three words can do? They didn't even have to say anything. I saw the face fall, and I went, <sighs> not only is that not a godly response to, to conversation and to conflict, um, what it communicated verbally and non-verbally is I care more about me not having to engage with this than doing the hard work of training you up in righteousness and in the truth of God. I'm thankful for God's grace because in those moments, dads and moms, we have the opportunity not to stay there. And that moment, I knew, boom, I was like, oh. Now I had the longer, harder work of reestablishing, I do love you. I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? As dads and as moms, Ways to not exasperate our kids, ways to not discourage them, involve sharing with them the truth of the situation that we're in, sharing with them that we care more about them than they could ever imagine, and even more than that, their Heavenly Father cares about them more than we could ever imagine. It means later nights, it means more prayer, it means Yielding ourselves and our will to love them the way God has loved us. 
none of that is easy. Whether you are a wife or your husband, whether you're a kid or whether you're a dad or mom, God calls each one of us to reflect his life in particular ways within our homes. And it's actually going to be through this central unit called the family that God will demonstrate his love, his forgiveness, his grace, his mercy in the most powerful of ways if we learn to walk in light of that truth. Dads, husbands, it begins with you. You will set the tone for your family. Wives, if your mom, your role is so important. You're loved by God. Walk in a manner that God has called you to. Kids, you're learning, you're growing, but guess what? So are your parents. Uh, we've got three kids, 12, 9, and 6 years, or sorry, 13. We're going to hear about that one later. 13. <laughs> Love you, kid. <laughs> he just shakes his head. Uh, 13, 9, and 6. We are learning day by day what it means to trust God for what we need to do what he has called us to do in these relationships. I don't know where you're at today, but I just want to remind you there is hope. Because when Christ, who is your life, lives his life through you, when you yield to him, when you're drawn to the Father, God provides everything you need. Would you pray with me, please? Father, um, teach us again what it means today when you say in your word, draw near to God, and you promise to draw near to us. As husbands, Lord, we, we want to draw near to you today. Help us to experience um, the life of Christ that is given to us upon our trusting in your death and in your resurrection. And God, give us the grace that we need as dads uh, and husbands to lead our families in ways that are right and good and biblical. Father, I pray for uh, the wives uh, here this morning. Teach them what it means to yield to, to yield voluntarily to their husbands as to the Lord. Um, you know exactly what that looks like in every, every relationship here. And so we trust you to, to yield specifically or to, to reveal specifically to them what that looks like. God, help us as kids to learn to obey our parents, not to earn their love because, <laughs> God, we're loved. Not to earn anything, God, but because it's who we are made in your image. It's what you've called us to do. We do so as unto the Lord. May we find as kids our first and total satisfaction in hearing your, your voice and being obedient to your call upon our lives. May in each of these relationships, God, we act in such a way to point our spouse or to point our kids or to point our parents back to the love and the grace and the forgiveness that is found in the Messiah Jesus. We thank you, God. Um, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.